today in the podcast, we have something a little bit different as we close up the adult education year before we break for summer. We have two weeks uh, to fill in, and so uh, these two weeks we'll be covering a few famous figures from church history. This week we have part one, and uh, we cover some of the early church martyrs. Uh, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John and a very uh, stern uh, witness for the faith. And then we also cover Irenaeus, who would fight against Gnosticism in the second century. And we look at these men and uh, these figures from church history and see how they can inform our lives today and what we can learn from them. So here's part one, and enjoy. Well, hello, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> um, so Lanning had finished up the last series, um, but there's only two weeks, so there was no point in starting the next one. There are two more of those to go in that overall series, so we'll pick those back up in the fall. So Camper asked me just to cover the final two weeks, and I'd already had a uh, eight to 12 week church history curriculum thing I'd written up, but he's like, well, can we find something shorter? And so I'm pulling from snippets of that, and I'm just gonna highlight over the next two weeks, uh, four or five like major figures from church history. So what I want to do is, um, hey Amanda, just um, go over some of their their life, some of their uh, impacts they've had on the church and people, but also um, not to try to keep it so academic. So as I go through, I will pause and I have some like reflection questions we can talk about and discuss, um, and then uh, some things of how uh, their life may impact things uh, that we are dealing with today. So. I'm calling this a little short series, A Few Famous Figures. Um, and so um, before I begin, um, usually I try to give like a foundation of why you should study church history. And because it's the kind of condensed version, um, I'll just stick with uh, one major point. We do have in Hebrews 11, the, you know, the um, hall of faith where the author goes through you know, all the prophets and people of the Old Testament and how they had faith. And then we come to Hebrews 12. Um, as we run the race of our Christian life, there's the image there that we're running a, a race and then we have like a crowd surrounding us, watching us run the race. And it's as if those people have gone before us or in a sense are watching us and they encourage us to go forward as our our main foundation that we are looking to Christ. And it's Christ that is, you know, enabling us to run um, this race uh, because he endured, you know, sin and death for us and then came back to life and is now restarting, you know, life and death, uh, life for us and is giving to us. But we are, have not reached glory yet, so we are still running the race. And so when we can look back to uh, historical figures, in church history, things that we can learn about from them or events that happen. There's a whole bunch of different things that help us, uh, why we should do that, that could help us in our life. But one reason I'm just going to focus on um, for the next two weeks is to develop Christian character and a robust faith by reflecting on the church's past. So I always like to say I, like, I love studying history and church history in particular because a lot of those guys, um, they figured out problems that we still deal with today, and they're way smarter than I ever will be. And so why put myself through extra work trying to figure stuff out that people have already figured out how to deal with certain problems? So I look back to them for help and guidance. And so we can see um, a couple, so we'll see a couple of examples of, of issues that we can face today that they've already faced and figured out and addressed. 
And, um, you know, the enemy seeks to attack us, um, and he usually seems to attack us in, um, with, the, with the same topics or same things to address, but he repackages it for different cultures and different times and centuries. And so uh, a good way to recognize, I think Lewis has a quote, uh, to recognize uh, things um, that are impacting yourself and your culture that you would not normally recognize because you're in the culture is to look at other cultures and times before before you because they, they look at things differently and can help you see some of your blind spots and weaknesses. So that's a primary, one of, one of the purposes of church history. And like I said, in my longer version, I have like five or six of them that I take a whole week to go through because it's very important, I think, to understand why we should study this. So this is kind of the focus for these next two weeks to help us develop Christian character by reflecting on the past, okay? All right, so... Um, the first guy we're going to look at is Polycarp. He is uh, a, a second century believer. He um, basically studied under the Apostle John. Um, and before I get there, I need to just set some groundwork, uh, the historical context. Um, in the early church, you know, we had martyrs and pretty much went on for the first three to four centuries. Um, different uh, times of persecution throughout the church. Um, and martyrs, in a sense, and I think unbiblically, but you could see how this developed, is that martyrs became like the super-Christian. Like, if you were a martyr, you were the Christian of Christians, because you didn't recant, you stayed true to the faith. And so martyrdom became honored. And if you became a martyr, you became, like, doubly honored. And your testimony and faith and willingness to stand firm was spread throughout, you know, um, the throughout the continents, basically, um, because they say true to the faith, they imitated Christ. So that was a big, big thing. Is um, imitating Christ was something huge in the early church. If you could stay true unto death, then you were truly a Christian. The problem, though, is they became lifted up above others who, unfortunately, did recant, but then repented, and so you started to get some strife and 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 second-class citizens within Christendom, and it caused some issues later. Um, but uh, one church father, Tertullian, said, um, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So what he meant by that is where there were martyrs found, people who stayed true to the faith, somehow it seemed that um, the church began to grow and expand through the death of martyrs, but also through their willingness to stand firm in the faith. So our first question we can just quickly discuss, do you think that's an accurate statement, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? Okay. I think there's truth in it, uh, in that if people are willing to die for a cause, people will give that cause serious work. And and examine that and what it means. Mm -hmm. why, why would somebody be willing to actually go to the radio? Yeah. Maybe it's um, it's kind of like, but stick with the analogy of seeds and plants and growing. Yeah. Maybe the seed is is deeper than that. The seed. But maybe martyrs would maybe a little more like maybe some fertilizer, you know. So they help the plants to grow. They encourage growth. Yeah. They're a good example. 
but it's not really the seed of the church. Right. Right. Let me say something, Alan. Yeah. So the problem I have with that statement is is it's really the blood of Christ is the seed of the church. Right. Martyrs are are testifying to the, the validity of Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection. Yeah. But that's different than the actor, the agent who brought about salvation. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think those those are all valid points. And I'm not here to critique when it's not a critique class of the the fathers and what they said, but it's just to be aware of some of the things they said. And they don't get everything right, obviously. And we'll see that. Um, but what they do get right, I think we should imitate and look towards. So, All right, so we move on to Polycarp now. Um, <clears throat> uh, let me just tell you his story, so bear with me as I tell you his story. It's, it's a fascinating story if you've never heard of it, and it's, uh, very encouraged. it's always been a very encouraging story to me. Um, we find his story in a letter called The Martyrdom of Polycarp, so he was martyred um, from the 2nd century um, to the church at Smyrna which is modern-day Turkey. Um, he was the bishop there, and he was also, like I said, a disciple of John the Apostle. Um, at this time, there was some persecution going on, and the Roman authorities were trying to find Polycarp. And um, he didn't hide from it. He didn't shun from it. But then his friends, uh, realizing that he was very influential and important to uh, the spiritual growth of this congregation in there, they, they persuaded him finally to go into hiding. And so he did. Um, and one, like I said, one of the tenets of the early church, because mar- martyrs became like honored, um, this started to happen after Polycarp, really. Um, they didn't seek martyrdom, but they didn't really run from it either. And so that's why his friends had to really persuade him to go into hiding. Um, so he goes into hiding, and eventually authorities find him after he's uh, betrayed by um, one of his servants. And um, so he's about to be arrested, and if he's going to be arrested, he's going to be put to death. So let me just read you the account. I'll put it up there. I don't know if it's... Yeah, you're not going to be able to read that. Okay. So let me just read you part of the, the account from the letter. And again, this letter was sent out to... The, the church there and surrounding areas as an encouragement for those undergoing, undergoing persecution. So keep that in mind as I read this. All right, so Polycarp, uh, being about evening, they found him lying down in the upper room of a certain little house from which he might have escaped into another place. But he refused, saying, The will of God be done. So when he heard that they were come, he went down and spake with them, and as those that were present marveled at his age and constancy, some of them said, was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? Immediately then, in that very hour, he ordered that something to eat and drink should be set before them, as much indeed as they cared for, while he besought them to allow him an hour to pray without disturbance. And on their giving him leave, he stood and prayed, being full of the grace of God, so that he could not cease for two full hours to the astonishment of them that heard him, insomuch that many began to repent that they had come forth against so godly and venerable an old man. All right, so Polycarp is uh, in his mid to late 80s at this age, and he's come to be arrested by the Roman soldiers. And so here are a couple things to note about Polycarp during his arrest. Um, <clears throat> so he's about to be arrested, and he has a chance to flee, and he doesn't. He offers the soldiers who come to arrest him food and drink. 
He prays for two full hours, and the next chapter in the letter actually says anyone he ever met, he prayed for, and he would continue to pray for the church at large. And then four, because of his actions, because of his old age and his character, the soldiers began to repent of them having to arrest him, and they were very remorseful um, because of his kindness. All right, so reflection question, very hypothetical question. What do you think about his actions? And do you think we could do that if the cops came to our door? So again, it's an example of that. They weren't seeking martyrdom, but they weren't going to flee from it either. Was, was his age, I mean, obviously, 80 back in that day. Yeah, he's pretty advanced. Pretty advanced, yeah. The average lifespan was 30s and 40s. I don't know the average, but he's... He's very old. I mean, so elsewhere in the letter, it details the Roman soldiers' reactions. They come to arrest him, and they don't even know he's that old, and they realize that they're like, whoa, what, why? What, what harm is this old man going to do to us? But because he was a bishop, and there was persecution going on, the leader, they wanted you know, to take him out. Um, so he's taken to an amphitheater and placed in front of the proconsul. Um, they want him to recant Christ or be killed. Um, but the proconsul tells Polycarp he doesn't want to kill him because he's so old, and so he appeals to his old age to recant. He's like, hey, you're old. There's no reason for you to go through this. Just recant Christ and let's go home. Um, but he does not. And here's, here's part of the account. And you can see his wit and determination in it. Uh, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, have respect to thy old age and other similar things according to their custom, such as swear by the future of Caesar, repent and say away with the atheists. The Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium and waving his hand towards them, towards the crowd, while with groans, he said and looked up to heaven, away with the atheists. So he's calling the crowd the atheists. And he's, he does what the proconsul says, but he you know, twists, it, twists it around on them. All right, so he's still got wit, determination, and fear, fearlessness. Um, <clears throat> let's see. So he, t he turns to the crowd, and then going back to the text, um, the, the proconsul urges him and, and says, Swear, and I will set thee at liberty, reproach Christ. Um, and then here comes one of the uh, a pretty famous line from church history. You probably have heard it. Um, here we go. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any harm. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Yeah. So the proconsul becomes even more irate and threatens Polycarp with being ripped to shreds by wild beasts and then burned to death by fire. And here is his response to that. Thou threaten me with fire which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth thou wilt. All right, so very, very bold and very, it's like, fine, you're going to kill me. I'm not going to recant Christ. This is why this letter has been a huge encouragement for me. Um, so Polycarp then is sentenced to be burned and nailed to a pyre. Um, and as the soldiers were about to actually nail him to this pyre, he says... Leave me as I am, for he that giveth me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without your securing me by nails to remain without moving in the pile. So, 
He doesn't even need to be nailed to his own cross. He will take it. So the fire is lit, and then the letter has some... There's a lot of disagreement on the accuracy of this part of the letter because there's like some miraculous events that occur. Um, the letter says the fire did not touch him. It made the shape of a sail that is full of the wind. It says Polycarp appeared not burnt, but golden like bread baked in an oven. A sweet and pleasing smell also arose among the crowd. Um, <clears throat> let's see. And, and some in the crowd see it, and then they begin to repent. So, again, even in his death, Polycarp's death is causing people to recognize there's something going on here. The, the fire is going around, and he hasn't actually been burnt, and so the, the guards actually get sick and tired of waiting around, even though some of the, the crowd around is responding to this, and they actually stab him in the side, which is what kills him. Um, and so Polycarp, he stands firm for the faith. He's one of the revered martyrs who would not reject Christ um, nor forsake the truth. Um, and so this is just a reflection question, something is to, th to think about. I don't think we all will know the answer to the question until it actually happens to us. But it's when we read the letter, it's something to reflect upon or actually pray about that God will give us grace to deal with persecution and things that will come. So what I would like to do is just spend like three or four minutes, we just go around and actually pray about this. Like pray that we, if we come under persecution, we'd be granted grace to withstand, but also pray for our brothers and sisters around the world actually right now who are being persecuted. So Alan, would you mind just saying a quick prayer for us? Lord, we uh, thank you for the example of Polycarp. Thank you for his, uh, his love for you, his uh, devotion to Jesus as Lord and became and his uh, endurance to the end. Ask Lord that um, you might grant us that grace and endurance that we need. Lord, we, we don't face anything approaching that persecution. Give us the endurance to face the persecution that might be. We pray for the um, the persecuted church around the world where people are threatened with imprisonment, loss of uh, family, and loss of worldly goods, and, and even death. And we ask the Lord um, that their, uh, their suffering might be a, a sweet fragrance of rising to you, that their witness might be firm to the end, if, if they are to end under this persecution. We pray, Lord, that um, we might uh, strive to, uh, to bring about your kingdom on earth, whether it's through uh, sacrifice or through working for, for justice and evangelism or um, to pray all this in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you give us. Uh, as Alan said, we, we really don't face persecution here. We do pray that we remember our brothers and sisters around the world who are being imprisoned, silenced, even killed. We pray that uh, your gospel would spread 
and people would ask questions and be influenced by their steadfastness and pray that you continue to give them grace uh, to resist uh, recanting, to resist denying you. Uh, We thank you for their example, but we look to your example most of all, Jesus, that you set your face to the cross and did what you uh, volunteered to do. And we thank you for that, and we thank you that you continue to build your church. Amen. All right, so now we move on to Irenaeus. We are still in the uh, second century. This, uh, his story will occur about um, 20 years or so after Polycarp. Um, so Polycarp being persecuted, and so more, more persecutions would occur. We're in about uh, 177. A brief but brutal persecutions occurred in Lyon and uh, Vienne, southern France, France. This person saw, and I quote, uh, this persecution saw, and I quote, 50 persons, both male and female, young and old, martyred on account of their admitted Christian faith. More people were tortured under the state, under the rule of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, Local authorities would hold Christians prisoner until the governor decided what to do with them. After consultation and approval from the emperor, the governor would carry out atrocious acts against Christians. A few scholars believe the persecutions were the most brutal ever recorded. Christians who were Roman citizens were beheaded. Non-Roman citizens were tortured and then gored to death by wild animals, usually in public and in front of large crowds. Uh, I quote, In some instances, and perhaps out of sheer frustration at their obstinacy, Christians eventually had their throats cut if they continued to outlive their oppressors' inhumane treatment. End quote. The only way to survive torture and persecution was to receive a pardon. A pardon was given if the Christian were to pledge allegiance to Rome and recant the Christian faith. Um, And they were like little, I think they were called libelluses, little um, pieces of paper you got that said, you're you're pardoned. Uh, Christians from Gaul, Lyon, and other uh, parts of France wrote letters to other churches letting them know what was going on. These letters were preserved and later published by Eusebius, who is considered the church's first historian. One letter states, quote, The greatness, indeed, of the tribulation and the extent of the madness exhibited by the heathen against the saints and the sufferings which the martyrs endured in this country, we are not able fully to declare, nor is it indeed possible to describe them. So, brutal, brutal persecution is going on. Um, and particularly at Lyon, um, Christians there who endured church torture were herded into the amphitheater at Lyon and killed by wild beasts. One of those killed during these persecutions was the bishop. His name was Pothonis. His, his successor was Irenaeus, our first, our, really the first major theologian we will talk about. So Irenaeus basically becomes bishop because of persecutions. That's the context, how he basically starts his ministry. All right, so brief account of Irenaeus. He was born in modern-day Turkey in about 130. When he was young, he heard Polycarp. And so you kind of have a line from John the Apostle, Jesus, John the Apostle, Polycarp, and Irenaeus. And that becomes important in a few minutes. Um, uh, Irenaeus has great regard for Polycarp um, and uh, he calls him a, a, a man of great weight and a steadfast witness of truth. Um, Irenaeus is two big things. Uh, 
that he did for most of his life were shepherding his flock that was given to him in France and refuting the beliefs of one Valentinius, who was a Gnostic and a Marcion, which I'll talk about. Um, his two main works are that have only that have survived are the demonstration of apostolic faith and um, on the detection to overthrow of the so-called gnosis, or more properly called against heresies. All right. So we will. I will speed through what Gnosticism is because uh, it's very difficult to define. Uh, but it's important to understand uh, what a threat it was and why Irenaeus' uh, attacks and, and defense against it were important. Um, so I'm really going to fly through this. Uh, it receives its name from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Uh, it's secret, and you need it in addition to the scriptures basically to be saved. Um, here are some key points. Uh, there's a supreme God, but he's, he's too big for us to know. And he lives in... Uh, like a heaven with other sub-gods. And one sub-god named Sophia wanted to be like this supreme god. She had a son known as the Demiurge, and he was evil just like his mother. The Demiurge created the world, and everything he created is evil. So there's a key point of Gnosticism, like matter, things that are created, evil. Spiritual things, good. So you have like this dualism here. Um, and then the Demiurge is also known as Yahweh, the same from the Old Testament. So you can immediately see major problems with, with this line of thinking. And there's many forms of Gnosticism. What I'm outlining here are like some of the common points, right? So there's, there's too much to go into. Um, so these are like the main points. Evil is, or matter is evil and bad, and Yahweh uh, created matter and evil, and he's bad, and he's the God of the Old Testament. But how can you get saved in this framework? Um, the supreme God, so he's over the Demiurge, over Yahweh. He placed good spirits on, on earth, known as aeons. They would reside in evil bodies, but they could be turned on. They could be switched on to allow people to escape the evil world and escape to the spiritual good. Um, these seeds of light could be turned on through the sun. John 3.16 is used to show that the supreme God sent his son Christ to free man, but Christ is just another sub-God sent to enlighten these like hidden aeons that live in people. Christ temporarily joined with the man Jesus in order to give people the, the secret knowledge they would need to be freed, and no one could come to the supreme unknowable God unless they came through Christ. All right? So you can see what Gnosticism is doing. It's taking elements of Christianity, putting its own little spin on it based upon their worldview, right? So it's, there's syncretism there. And so the reflection question, what are some schools of thought that do the same today? And how can we recognize them? It reminds me a bit of Mormonism. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm going to step out of limb and actually say Islam, too. I almost kind of view Islam historically as a, as a Christian heresy. Yeah, so like I said earlier, the enemy is seeking to attack us, but he repackages things. So Gnosticism was very influential and widespread in the second century. And you, you've probably heard, on, especially on the History Channel, the Lost Gospels. Those are usually Gnostic in nature. Um, and uh, it started to influence the church. Uh, Valentinius, I'll look, talk about a little bit. 
he was like Irenaeus's guy that he would attack, basically because he was very influential. He was so influential, he almost became Bishop of Rome. Like he was that close to becoming Bishop of Rome. That's, that's probably a good reason why Presbyterianism is better than Episcopalianism. <laughs> to humanize the holy, I mean, is it trying to be like you are, you can be a god? So, uh, it's more in the... Yeah. Like, matter is evil. Right. And then you have the gatekeepers and keep special. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But the other thing is matter is evil and you need to get out of it. And so, like, our bodies are wicked and, and that's just all evil. And so we obviously see the problem with that. And so Irenaeus will look at that, especially in uh, Christ incarnation, because God takes on flesh and he uses that to destroy their arguments. So, um, yes. Yep. Makes big issue with resurrection exactly yep yeah. all right so Irenaeus would attack Gnosticism um, because he saw the danger to it and to his people he would uh, basically write against Valentinius and his uh, major thoughts um, because there there are so many different forms but they all had some common themes and so he would he would just attack one to dismantle the rest right to, to attack the head of the snake and then you cut that off and the snake, the rest of the part of the snake will die. And he has a, he has a great quote, uh, why, is he attack, why is he only attacking this one form instead of going after all of them? He says, it is not necessary to drink up the ocean in order to learn that its water is salty. <laughs> so he would attack Valentinius and his followers. Um, the hard part, though, is they would, they would maintain themselves as Christians, which seems to explain why he almost became Bishop of Rome, because people viewed them as true Christians, true believers, believers holding to the, the doctrine and faith that had been passed down. Um, so his, his task was hard because they're using like the same language, obviously different terms though. Um, so Valentinus became the rose of prominence, um, and then eventually he would fall into apostasy around 175. Um, <clears throat> uh, and so he had great influence, so he had a rise, and then he had a fall, and Irenaeus was a part of Valentinius' fall. But he, Valentinius, church historians identify Valentinius as one of three arch-heretics in the early church. Um, one is Arius, which you probably heard that name. Valentinius is the second one. And the third one is um, Marcion. So we will look at Marcion. And you can see elements of Gnosticism through Marcionism. Um, he was a wealthy, Marcion was a wealthy shipowner from northern Turkey. He came to Rome about 138 AD. He began to argue that the Old Testament was inferior to the New and therefore was not authoritative. He believed that God in the Old Testament was wrathful, was not the same God as the forgiving God in the New Testament. Um, the Old Testament was a lower entity, a lower deity. He was a tyrant. Um, and Marcion has shared similarities with Gnosticism that they're both dualistic. There's a higher spiritual good and a lower material evil. Marcion believed there were two gods, the evil god of the Old Testament and the good loving god of the New Testament. Why do you think Marcionism is so dangerous? Well, if, if we accept only the New Testament, we don't understand 
God, and it's a very short path to cheap grace where mm -hmm. God loves us, but sin isn't that big of a deal. Right. Right. Yep. Even if you accept the Old Testament, it's built on the Old Testament, right? So you can accept all you want in the New Testament, but if you don't have a foundation, it's... Yeah. Yeah. So back to Marcion, he rejected the Old Testament. He insisted the New Testament revealed the true God. However, he even had caveats for the New Testament. He only accepted 11 of 27 of the New Testament books. These were 10 of Paul's epistles, and then he would uh, chop up and abridge uh, the Gospel of Luke to fit whatever he wanted. Um, he approved some of the Pauline epistles. He thinks that Paul correctly transmitted Christ's message um, but his major, his major goal was to rid every trace of Judaism from, from the canon. And so, Marcion became known as the archenemy of the Jew God. His own father, who was bishop of Sinope, excommunicated him in 144 because of heretical opinions. However, his ideas continued to spread, and his followers became known as Marcionites. All right, and so Irenaeus would have to also attack um, Marcion as well. All right, so some major, uh, uh, well, okay, so this is how Irenaeus, this is setting up the foundation of how he would attack these two schools of thoughts. He quoted or referred to about 900 texts of Scripture. So some scholar has said if we lost most of the New Testament, we could almost reach, reconstruct it from all of the quotes from the church fathers. That's how extensively that they are using Scripture and quoting from the New Testament. Irenaeus said scripture is the entirety of the Old Testament and most of the New Testament, and I'll explain that. He recognized 21 of 27 New Testament books, did not include any of the Gnostic books that were circulating in the 2nd century, and he asserted that the four Gospels known today were all legitimate. Um, 21 out of the 27, you know, there were some books that had some dispute. They're trying to figure out, is it part of the canon or not? I'm not going to talk about that. But the important point I want you to see here is this, he has 21 of 27 New Testament books in the second century. You hear in the History Channel a lot that Constantine in the, in the fourth century, they just picked whatever books they wanted and rejected all these other books and didn't let them have air. You have almost 200 years before that, a guy saying, no, we've only got these books as part of the New Testament. And the, the second century gospel texts, um, they circulated around far and wide, but they weren't accepted far and wide. That's what they don't tell you on the, on the History Channel. That's, that channel needs to be renamed. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Alright, so uh, I'll go back here. So Irenaeus would use scripture to attack um, the schools of thought. Um, he basically said he wanted to stress the unity between the old and the new. This would obviously refute uh, Marcion's attack that you know the new was better than the old. Um, he would use scripture. Um, so again, the 900 quotations or so, he's using scripture for his arguments. He's not just making stuff out of thin air. Um, <clears throat> okay, and then another issue that he would use to attack, uh, remember I said that you could draw a line from Christ to John the Apostle to Polycarp to Irenaeus. So Irenaeus would say we have, we have a public tradition and we have public figures that we can go back to and say this is what has been taught publicly 
Whereas the Gnostic text, where Brian said, they had a secret knowledge. So Valentinius, he couldn't really say, yeah, I learned so-and-so from Joe Smith. Where Irenaeus said, well, I learned so-and-so from Polycarp. I learned it from John the Apostle who learned it from Christ. So he would use that as a line of attack saying, our knowledge is public. You can falsify it. Your knowledge is secret. You, you can say whatever you want and I can't disprove it. So that would also would undercut uh, Valentinius' uh, um, his, his argumentation for uh, Gnosticism. All right, we're almost done. Um, <clears throat> he also had what he called uh, the rule of faith. Um, it was like a guiding principle for the church fathers. Basically, uh, there was one God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Father is God, and the Son is God. And for that which is begotten of God is God. So Irenaeus states pretty clearly what would be affirmed 200 years later, the Council of Nicaea, where we get the, uh, basically the, the, the Nicene Creed from. Um, Jesus, as a son of God, he lived, died, and then was resurrected. The incarnation and resurrection of the body was also a key refutation since Gnostics believes all material things were evil. And thus, um, Christ's work did not require incarnation, right? So the Gnostics had a Christ too, but... He came to save people from the evil, uh, the evil world. Um, but Christ taking on human flesh shows that matter is not itself inherently evil, but that Christ comes to redeem, right, the material world. You saying Christ became matter for each matter and matter matters. Matter matters. Yes, matter matters. Yes. Uh, Irenaeus viewed the entirety of Scripture as a testament to the incarnational Son of God. Refuting Marcionism, he's refuting Gnosticism where they separate the two testaments and he's using the incarnation to bind it all together. And which also refutes the understanding that, that material is evil and there's only a spiritual good. So he's using the incarnation of Christ to show how all, all of the arguments for the Gnostics and the Marcionites, they fail. Because Christ came to redeem People, he actually came to redeem creation, and matter is not evil, and matter is is good because God created it, and Christ lived in it, and He redeems it, and then the spiritual is obviously also good because eventually we will be with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. All right, so that's how Irenaeus um, refutes those two main uh, schools of thought, which are actually, uh, like I said two of the three arch enemies of the early church. So I know I'm flying through this, like I had to skip a lot of this, but the, the main point I want you to take away is that um, Polycarp stood firm, stood firm for his faith, did not recant, and then Irenaeus had a, a, a care for his flock, and he saw errors and heresies creeping in, and he had to address it. And um, he used argumentation, the scriptures, and I think really the, the spirits helped to really knock down something that was very, very dangerous in the second century. But he was able to refute it because pretty much after Irenaeus comes off the scene, Gnosticism, like, it goes away. There are some little small sects here and there, but it did not have the major influence that it had in the second century. So Irenaeus should be remembered for preserving and passing down and defending um, the incarnation of Christ 
and its importance for redemption, for 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 creation and for us. So we're at ten forty five, so I should probably wrap up. Um, any questions or comments? <clears throat> All right, let, let me close with this. When I I said twice already that the enemy seeks to basically attack us with the same thing, but repackage things. So let me just close with this. Um, so Gnosticism has not been influential, but it has started to creep up again, like I was mentioning in the History Channel and, and the Lost Gospels and things. But in 20, I think it was 2012, there was a film called Noah with Russell Crowe. Anyone remember that film? Yeah, I didn't see it. Um, but let me just give you a brief synopsis of the film and why I'm uh, highlighting this. Basically, in the film, God is evil for, like, wiping out the world. And Noah, like, call, tries to call him out. And there's, like, a secret figure in there. And it's, like, Gnosticism all over the place. The problem was, when it came out, you had all these, like, Christian leaders start promoting it. And saying, you should go see this, and blah, 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 blah. And, like, one scholar, he wrote an article after it came out, like, blasting all these leaders because... It's straight up Gnosticism. And he said, how did people miss this? And he says, how did people miss this? Well, because they didn't study church history. They went right over their heads and they started promoting something that's antithetical to the scriptures and to the gospel. So another example why church history is important. The enemy can try to attack us in different ways and repackage it. And we're, our culture is obviously very susceptible to you know, TV shows and movies. We're very influenced by them. So another reason to study church history, just be aware of what's gone before and what can come back at us again in different packages and manners. So I'll just leave you with that. Actually, Dave, you want to pray for us? Do you mind praying for us? Father, we thank you for this um, study in church history this morning and for the insights uh, that it can provide and, uh, and how it can help us recognize error and realize that many of the things that are showing up today have been around for a long time. Let's pray that it will help us be discerning and, uh, as we attempt to put forth the gospel in the world that we live in today. We thank you for this class and Christine.